This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Much had been made during the 2016 presidential election about Donald Trump's call for deregulation. He wanted to reduce the number of overall regulations that he saw impeding business growth. According to data from a speech given by our next guest, the number of cumulative pages in the code of federal regulations has more than doubled from 75,000 to more than 180,000 between 1975 and 2016. But the idea of regulatory excellence is one that has many aspects to it in order to both see business success, but also still protect citizens. Kerry Colonisi is a professor of law and a professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as director of the Penn Program on Regulation. He has uh, authored the, uh, he is behind the uh, report on this called Achieving Regulatory Excellence, which he has also written a book about it. And Kerry joins us here in the studio. Kerry, great to see you again. Good to be here, Dan. So I guess take us into the presentation uh, that was made on Capitol Hill, and what was really the goal of, of, of bringing this idea forward? Well, one thing that uh, I wanted to do when I went to Capitol Hill as part of the Penn Wharton Public Policy Initiative series of briefings on Capitol Hill was simply uh, give uh, staffers on the Hill a better idea of what's happening with regulation and how it all works. Uh, the world of regulation is one of these uh, realms of policymaking that's absolutely critical, yep. but uh, largely is misunderstood and, and hidden from public view. It, you know, listen, uh, high school students in their civics classes, they learn about how a bill becomes a law, but uh, they don't learn about what happens at all the hundreds of different federal regulatory agencies and how they operate. So uh, part of my purpose there was to give some insight into how this relatively obscure process works, even for people who are staffers on the Hill. <laughs> which is which is something that a lot of people would set back and say, well, wait a minute, hold it. These are the people that are writing these laws involved in these regulations, and they really don't understand what's going on that's behind right. it. That's right. And, that, you know, actually, that's uh, one of the reasons why uh, the number of pages in the Code of Federal Regulations has increased over the years. It's because Congress passes laws that uh, call for agencies to develop regulations. Uh, Trump, uh, back in December, uh, had a press conference in which he uh, contrasted the uh, a huge pile of papers that was uh, taller yep. than himself uh, that was supposed to represent the number of pages in the Code of Federal Regulations today. And then uh, about uh, six feet away on the ground was a, another smaller pile of regulations uh, or papers that, that represented regulations and the level of them in 1960. Right. And there was this uh, red ribbon between them uh, from the low level of 1960 to this massive pile from yeah. today. Great visuals. Uh, and he cuts this uh, red ribbon between them and says, we're going to get back to the level we had in 1960. Well, you can't, uh, because one of the reasons that we have so many more pages in the F Code of Federal Regulations is because Congress has passed an enormous number of laws uh, since 1960. But the expectation is that you would have a level of increase in terms of the regulations anyway, because as businesses develop, new technologies come on board, you're going to have these new regulations that are going to be put in place. That's right. And that was one of the things I emphasized uh, on Capitol Hill, is that if you look at the rate of growth in regulations and then compare that to the rate of growth in the economy, the economy's grown much more than 
the, the rate of regulations. If you look at other indicators of the more complex uh, economy that we have, for example, say the uh, uh, the number of patent applications, uh, that skyrocketed over the years. The number of patents that have been issued, the number of airline passengers, all of these indicators of the complexity of our economy have increased dramatically. And so it's not surprising that regulations have also increased somewhat, too, not at anything close to the rate of these other indicators. So so playing off of uh, the title of your book, what do you believe is regulatory excellence in this day and age? Well, listen, um, you know, one of the motivations behind the book was to begin to kind of transfer into the world of regulation a lot of thinking that has has, has, has really uh, passed through the, the private sector over the last several decades about quality manufacturing, for example. We right. understand and have thought a lot about quality in the private sector. Remarkably, remarkably little attention to quality or excellence in the regulatory realm. Now, some people, I grant you, will say regulatory excellence, that must be an oxymoron. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but I think uh, what we wanted to do is take that notion seriously and, yes, um, try to define it a, a bit. Uh, it is hard to define in part because what counts as excellent regulation will vary from realm to realm. Regulation is a way of solving problems. Yeah. And so to define excellence, you have to, first of all, be thinking about concrete problems that uh, that, that are trying to be solved. When Uh, The Environmental Protection Agency, during the Reagan administration, took a look at uh, what was happening from the uh, pollution from cars that were burning lead fuel. The Reagan administration moved forward and said, we've got to eliminate lead from gasoline. And they did so uh, in in a time when when otherwise an administration was committed to to what most people thought of as deregulation. So you're talking about, in certain cases, uh, instances where there may be a common good, public good, that, that comes into play. But you're also talking about a time, and this was the case probably to a degree in Reagan's administration, obviously still here today, that you have companies and the influence that they have on Capitol Hill obviously have a concern of making the changes. There probably was when you were talking back in the in the 70s and the 80s with the EPA with uh, looking at lead in gasoline as well. Sure. There, you know, there's always a, a, a trade-off here that you have to think about with regulation. Both think about what the public benefits are, but also think about what the private costs are. And you want to make sure that overall regulation is moving in a direction in which we're getting benefits that justify, maybe even outweigh uh, definitely those uh, those costs, and there, but there's everybody recognizes that there's some need for regulation. Uh, there are failures in the marketplace. Uh, there's what what economists call externalities, spillovers like pollution, like the lead uh, in the pollution from automobiles burning leaded gasoline. There's also uh, information asymmetries where consumers just don't have as much information about the product. So we justify food and drug regulation uh, on that grounds as well. And then, of course, there's real concern about monopoly power. Concentration of of market power is another justification for regulation. 
Carrie Colonese joins us in studio, professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking about the presentation he gave recently on Capitol Hill uh, to staffers about regulation and uh, regulatory excellence. He is also the author of the book, Achieving Regulatory Excellence. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. In this report that you did, you also focus on the Bush and, and Obama administrations as well, and looking at regu- regulation in both of those in both of those times in the White House, correct? That's right. I mean, sometimes people wonder what are we getting for uh, all the regulation that we've seen, and if you look at the, uh, the the estimates that have come out of White Houses, both in Republican administrations and in Democratic administrations. We can see that there's uh, certainly a, a lot of costs associated to regulation, but there's also a demonstrated uh, high level of benefits as well. And so, uh, there, you know, we have this this process that has been in place since the Reagan administration to have new regulations reviewed by economists uh, at the agencies and at the White House, and you know, the evidence is really quite compelling that. These significant regulations are delivering uh, positive net benefits to society. But where are we in terms of the, the, the growth of the amounts of regulations, even in the short term? I, I, I mean, President Trump has obviously talked about the need to cut regulations. He talked about, you know, uh, getting rid of two regulations for every one, you know, that that he wanted to bring forward. Where are we in terms of the scope of the growth of regulations, especially when we have so much new kind of in our society today? Well, I think a lot of the new innovations are probably the least regulated. If you think about uh, uh, self-driving cars, well, there's right. NHTSA guidance on it, but it's not been very uh, carefully, you know, or, or stringently regulated or yeah. overly regulated by the federal government. Uh, you think about uh, well, social fa- media, social yeah. media, yeah. Facebook. I mean, we're just at the early stages of thinking about what regulation might mean in that context. Uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, precision medicine. There's a lot of technological advances, a lot of which are incredibly promising. And we certainly don't want regulation to impede innovation that's positive for society. But we do need regulators to kind of up their game. And I think one of the messages I also gave to folks on Capitol Hill is that if we want to have the positive benefits of an increasingly optimizing smart economy that's based upon a lot of new innovations. But we also want to avoid the real problems that these innovations are likely to have associated with them, then what we need to do is up the game in Washington and and increase the capacity, the human capacity, uh, the resources that our regulators have, not necessarily to do more regulation, but to do smarter regulation. And it also talks about the fact that, that they need to have it in their mindset, that you need to address this. And that would probably be a question of whether or not it's actually been the case, you know, for, for many decades now. That's right. We need you need good information in order to make sound, smart regulatory decisions. 
And if we really uh, just sort of turn our backs on this and don't study uh, what's happening with new innovations, then uh, then then we may overlook or and have some real public harms develop. You have a, a, an interesting graph uh, in the presentation that you did uh, that looks at the growth of regulation in terms of real GDP, but also in terms of the growth. You mentioned patent applications yeah. earlier, which obviously in the last few years have been skyrocketing with all the, the new technology that we have here. But you're talking about growth pretty much on all fronts here. It's just at, at varying levels. That's right. And the lowest level of growth has been in the pages of regulations. So, uh, you know, we should not overstate the degree to which regulation is smothering the economy or holding back innovation. <laughs> it's, uh, it's true that we have more regulations today than we did in 1960. Uh, indisputable. But uh, we also have a lot of new technologies and, quite yeah. frankly, new problems that we weren't even aware of. In the 1960, people weren't really uh, focused on the dangers of tobacco smoke, environmental right. contamination, civil rights was just emerging, uh, consumer protection uh, and, and, and the like. Those were all nascent areas. And today we have you know, our own nascent areas that we need to be thinking about and watching, not, not, to, uh, not to clamp down uh, unduly, but to, to, to be able to make smart regulatory decisions when needed. You, you look at this uh, in your work that you did through kind of three kind of main areas. Yeah. You talk about the procedure part, which is a little bit of the politics behind it, the management, which seemingly is, is how you handle these in, in the wake of a regulation being passed. And then you also talk about the technology side as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, listen, yeah. So I think the way historically we've thought about getting smart regulation, about achieving regulatory excellence in the United States has largely been procedural in that we've tried to create an Administrative Procedure Act and procedures for White House review of new regulations. We've proceduralized the, what what we hope will generate good regulation. And to some extent, those are really valuable. I mean, we're probably ahead of the world in terms of our transparency in the regulatory process. Yeah. But that's not enough. And when I moved on to say we also need good management, and we've done over the last couple of years in this regulatory excellence project uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of focus on what counts as good management practices in the regulatory process. And I'm happy to talk about that. And the third area, though, and I think this is the one where uh, it follows on what we've just talking about, technological innovations that regulators themselves yeah. should be thinking about using. There's advances in new sensing technology. Uh, there's new uh, developments in machine learning that can help regulators forecast problems more precisely. And it's on this last realm that I think we've given the least amount of attention to. I, although I, along with a co-author, a former Penn student actually, have written an article recently called Regulating by Robot, in which we <laughs> explore the possibility that yeah. regulators might uh, do better in s addressing some problems if they can use the tools of artificial intelligence to support their decision making. Take out some of the personal emotional 
contact that 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 could come into play. Yeah, emotional, you know, other forms of bias, uh, and quite frankly, a lot we we know a lot about the cognitive errors that people are making, and and if we can design uh, computerized tools to make better forecasts, we could really uh, do a much better job. In fact, some research that we've been uh, sponsoring here at the Penn Program on Regulation has looked at how OSHA. Uh, could improve its targeting of unsafe workplaces right. uh, through a, a machine learning analysis. Uh, and, and, and we've shown that they could target about 30% better than they're, they're currently doing. They can't get to every workplace to inspect. Sure. So you want to pick and choose appropriately. And uh, this is just one of many examples of, of where regulators might benefit from some of the new technologies. How, how much do you think, though, that we do need? And, and look, I think part of this is also when you're talking about these regulations, you're talking about some that have been in play for many decades, some that are rel- more new. Uh, but it, it has to be a constant updating process. You can't just put a regulation into play and leave it sit for 30 or 40 years because of how technology ends up developing and the impacts end up changing in the end. Well, that's right. And a lot of people will look at how many regulations are coming out of Washington and not realize that a good number of those regulations are in the category that I call kind of housekeeping or maintenance. So here's a surprising statistic that in light of all that the Trump administration has said about its regulatory rollback, if you look in the Federal Register, which is the daily publication where all new regulations appear, uh, for the first year of the Trump administration, 3,222 new final rules were published in the Federal Register. And that's really about the same level as we would find in the Obama administration. Now, are all these 3,000 rules uh, highly consequential? You know, are they they path-breaking? No. Uh, A lot of them are just what regulatory agencies need to do day in and day out. Right to maintain that stock of regulations and make sure that it's working well. Kerry Colonese joining us here in studio from the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I wanted to take you back to the management piece this because yeah. you wanted to, yeah. to dive into this. And, and how important that part of it is to the entire process. Well, I think it's central. At the end of the day, uh, what I think is that regulatory excellence is really about people excellence. You know, we think about regulation as this technocratic, maybe obscure thing. I think when people hear the word regulation, probably their eyes glaze over and it just sounds pretty boring and dull. But really, fundamentally, regulation is about people, the regulators, uh, trying to help shape the uh, the behavior of other people right. in the regulated industry. Why? To serve still yet other people, consumers, the broader public, for example. And you can't really have excellent regulation if you overlook the people and the management of regulatory organizations. Sure. And, and so one of the things we've developed uh, is a framework for Uh, regulatory organizations and their leaders to use to try to assess how well they're doing on three critical attributes of regulatory excellence that we identified from an extensive amount of research that we did. 
and and those three uh, really fall into uh, the categories of integrity. So a regulator not only needs to lack corruption, but really be even-handed and and willing to play fair. Yeah, uh, the regulator needs to be competent. It needs to be able to put in place rules that right. are sensible. That Everybody gets that. Which is why they have staffers right. to tell them about these things, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And then the third is uh, they need to be empathic. They need to engage with the public and listen attentively. doesn't mean they have to do everything that they're told right. by the public or by industry. They, we certainly wouldn't want that. But, but they do have to listen attentively with an aim of learning how to do better, how to create smarter regulation. So off of those three ideas right there that you lay mm-hmm. out, do you think that's actually occurring in this day and age? Uh, I think it's something that you do find uh, you know, happening in some agencies at some times, but, right. but it ebbs and it flows. I mean, there's very serious questions right now about, for example— the integrity of the top leadership at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency sure. with uh, yeah. all sorts of, of, of allegations and, and, and investigations that are taking place right now by Congress, inspector generals, and the so forth. And, you know, however, uh, however hard somebody's trying to work uh, at, at a, in improving on a competency level, if you don't have integrity and if you're perceived as illegitimate, it's going to make it very hard to get your job done, and I think it is making it hard for for Pruitt at EPA to get his his job done. It may well drag down the administration some and be a a, a contentious issue in the next election, even. Yeah. Uh, and and if 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 Republicans lose in the Congress, uh, House, maybe the Senate too in the fall. That's going to make it much harder for this administration to achieve its its objectives on the regulatory front because these administrators are going to be hauled in front of Congress for hearings and 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 it's going to slow things down. Well, and that's I think that's part of the process that that a lot of people that you know citizens of the U.S. don't follow on a day to day basis is that process and, and yeah. the process in general. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, feels like it's you have to be. You have to be diligent in the process. You have to have a certain level of pace, of control when you're going through this process. But I think there are also times where people have an expectation that the process could be more effective, more efficient. And at times it is or it isn't. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the process is not quick, uh, too. Right. And, yeah. and for many years, folks on the left... Uh, criticized the process as being too ossified as, as, and slowing things down. Of right. course, now I think the folks on the left are happy yeah. <laughs> that the process is ossified. And so, you know, yeah, when 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 Trump uh, claims to have really rolled back regulations, uh, he hasn't yet. I mean, there's many of the the so-called regulatory rollbacks that this administration has undertaken have only started the process of rolling back these regulations. They haven't finalized it yet. So it, it does take some time. Should there be an expectation that he could potentially have this level of rollback that he wants to have in this country because of all of the needs that we have for certain regulations. I mean, maybe in certain areas you can look at regulations and tweak something and and make it more efficient. But the expectation of just being able to pull back regulations at times 
you wonder whether or not that's a possibility even at the basic level. Well, first of all, it's not a possibility whenever the underlying statutes that Congress has passed have called for and even required regulations. And and many of the statutes actually call for. The Volcker Rule, for example, didn't just get dreamed up by folks in the Treasury Department. Congress said in the Dodd-Frank Act, you shall create this rule. And it gave a deadline even. So uh, this is... um, this is a real barrier, certainly, to any kind of regulatory rollback. But then the other thing is, even when agencies do have some discretion and they can change their minds uh, from administration to administration, they have to go through a process of proposing a rule, taking public comment, uh, justifying (laughs) the final rule, and making sure that it will meet the satisfaction of the courts. And in this regard, some of the early efforts by the Trump administration have met with, uh, with 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 uh, remands and and repeals from the uh, from the courts who who have said you haven't really done your homework yet. You what, have to do you have to do your homework to roll back rules. What was your reaction that you got from some of the staffers to this presentation? Well, I think that many of them actually appreciated the fact that I was able to, a to explain the process to them. And uh, that I also, uh, like we are here at the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania, we're kind of neutral players. And yeah. I think that's refreshing, quite frankly, yeah. in Washington. Yeah. So there were, there were folks, uh, you know, I'm sure who were working for one side of the aisle or the other who had very different views about what the direction should be for, for regulation uh, in the United States. But... Uh, I think they appreciated the broader perspective and awareness of how this process works. So playing off of that last comment, what do you think is the future on regulation here in the U.S.? And I guess to a degree we touched on it before is that with all these new technologies coming forward, that there is going to be a, a different or increased level of regulation that we will see with artificial intelligence, with autonomous vehicles, with yeah, you know, we may yeah. see social media obviously right. in the in, in the near term. Sure. Well, for each of those problems, that what form regulation takes will need to be different. It's got to be customized to fit the problems that are at hand and the technologies and the innovation. I think one thing that uh, we're seeing increasingly is a recognition that regulation needs to be more flexible, and that it needs to try to leverage the private sector's awareness of problems right. and tr- and try to pursue what I've called management-based regulation, where the regulators are not issuing edicts on high about exactly what to do or how to run a business, but rather are telling firms, and this is happening in a variety of areas, you go, uh, you, the private sector managers, go and analyze the hazards created by your operations and develop your own plans for addressing mm. those those plants, the, those problems. So it's <laughs> so there are requirements. The yeah. requirement is to develop a management plan or a management system that deals with the problem. And for new problems, for problems that are highly variable or changing rapidly because technology is changing, uh, that's a sensible approach. And in fact, that is essentially how the federal. Department of Transportation has so far approached autonomous vehicles. Right. They, yep. they haven't issued this so much in firm regulations, but they have a guidance that sure. calls for this kind of management 
planning by the automakers. Which, again, kind of goes back to something we talked about before, is the fact that in the case of autonomous vehicles, there is a want, but there's also a need to make sure that the public is secure in terms of the technology and how it is used on the roads of the United States so that we don't have, you know, unbelievable pain and, and angst against the, the consumers sure. of this country. Yeah, listen, it's a, you know, automobile safety is a huge problem for our society. Now, we've made some real strides over the recent decades. So, yep. you know, we used to have about 50,000 people die every year yep. in automobile yep. accidents. That's about a number of casualties we had in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Think about that. Every single year in automobiles. Now, we've been able to drive that down to maybe 36,000 a year. That's still an awful lot of fatalities. Yeah. And if autonomous vehicles can help us drive that down even lower, yep. that's great. But there's going to be a, a, a lot of transaction and transition costs along the way. And yep. the public's got to accept the technology. Kerry, great seeing you again. Thanks really for nice coming. to be here, Dan. Thank you. Great talking to you. Kerry Colonese from the University of Pennsylvania joining us here in the studio. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.